L Fanboy, Episode 5. Everybody, Mario Francisco Robles here, MFR, and this is the fifth episode of the El Fanboy Podcast. And man, am I fucking motivated right now. I was getting ready to do the show, and I uh, right before I decided to start, I was trying to pull up my reviews, because I'm going to read uh, the latest one that was added. Um, in doing so, I did one of the tricks. I did one of the tricks where, uh, you know, iTunes doesn't give you all your data. They don't tell you how many downloads you're getting. They don't really give you like the hard stats. But apparently, one of the main ways to see how you're doing, if your podcast happens to be on iTunes, which by the way, now it's also on uh, Stitcher and it's on TuneIn and it's on Overcast. It's pre- pretty much anywhere podcasts can be found. But um, one of the ways to see how your show is doing is to basically run like a, a general search, like a vague search for your type of podcast. And see where it comes up in terms of popularity. And guys, gals, anyone who's listening and subscribing to this and listening to this right now, I want to know, I want you to know that you have made the El Fanboy podcast the third most popular fanboy podcast on all of iTunes. Okay, that's fucking amazing. I'm just a dude talking to you. I'm not, I'm no longer attached to a big site. I know I don't have this big crazy production for you. It's from it's not a, a round table of me and a bunch of other people talking about things and sound effects and sponsors. This is just me speaking to you guys from the heart. And my last the last episode, episode four, which is uh, the subtitle is "What a Time to Be Alive," is the third most popular fanboy podcast on all of iTunes right now, and. Even when you look at just general podcasts, like I'm up there and like I'm like in the top 10 overall. And for a show that's pretty much less than two months old, holy shit, does the future look good if we keep this up. So everyone who's taken the time to like, subscribe, rate the show, thank you from the bottom of my goddamn heart. You guys are helping this grow in ways that I was not expecting. You know, when I do this stuff, I don't expect that anyone even gives a damn. I assume I'm doing this and there's going to be like four of you who are listening and four of you who care. I don't think that I have this sort of wide reach. But to, to, to see that apparently the popularity of the show is the way it is and that it seems to be growing at such a steady clip, it's just beyond humbling. And... Uh, I'm, I'm going to stop with all, you know, I bring this up every week, how like overcome I am. And I, I'm worried that you guys think that this is like uh, some sort of false modesty or like I'm downplaying shit. No, I don't expect anything from this. And the fact that you guys care means a ton. Um, so the latest review is from user Dax3371. He says, he refers to the show as the very best, five stars. He says, very passionate and knowledgeable podcast centering on film and the current news of the industry. Thanks, Mario, for making my long commute enjoyable. Wish I could give you more than five stars. Jesus Christ, guys. Thank you so much, Dax. And anyone, if you're listening to this, please uh, take the time 
jump on iTunes later today and leave me a review because the more good reviews I get, the more high ratings I get, the more that the iTunes algorithm will expose me to people who are out there looking for this sort of thing. And uh, right now, that's the place I'm in. I'm trying to grow the brand. I'm trying to expand the reach. And there are times where I wonder if I'm just pissing into the wind. And then I come online and I realize I'm not. This is actually going somewhere. So thank you for those of you who've started the fire. I need the rest of you who are listening to help spread the fire. Okay? Just damn. Thank you so much. But okay. Enough of the personal stuff. Um, There's a lot to talk about today. There is a lot to talk about today. And uh, so I want to just get right into it. Um, Yeah, I usually start with the box office. So I'm going to do that just to sort of get that out of the way. And uh, just to kind of give you an overview, today's topics are going to include... Uh, you know, DC being rated R, those comments from last week, which came out just after I was talking about the fact that certain things should not be made into adult content if they were intended to be for kids and that we're sort of, you know, uh, tampering with the purity of these projects and overextending and overexposing them. If you recall, I brought that up last week. And then freaking five minutes later, this uh, report came out that DC was now uh, looking to make some rated R movies. So I'm going to I'm gonna go into that after box office. We're going to talk about Wonder Woman. We're going to talk about Thor Ragnarok. We're going to talk about Avatar getting delayed, Game of Thrones, the Man of Steel 2 director that is currently apparently Warner Brothers' top choice. We're going to get into Star Wars without spoilers. We're going to get into Star Wars, some of the stuff that's hit the net lately. We're going to get into Iron Fist. We're going to get into Logan, finally, now that it's been two weeks. I'm going to talk to you guys a little bit about... You know, the the spoiler stuff. We're going to get into some of the stuff I didn't want to get into when I reviewed the film almost a month ago now. Uh, Now I feel finally there's been enough time that I can get into it. I'm going to purposely, though, save that for the end of the show. So those of you who still haven't seen it and you don't want to get into the spoilers of Logan, don't worry. You can listen to the whole show. I will let you know just as we're about to change over into Logan territory. And once I and that's going to be how we close things. So if that's where you want to jump off, that's where you could jump off. But for now, let's talk about some fucking fanboy news out there. So, um, you know, 2017 has been a big year for genre films so far. Uh, you know, you had Get Out as a horror movie, and you also had Split as a horror movie coming out. You know, kicking ass and taking names at the box office. Um, and just and doing well critically and creating all kinds of great buzz. So it was like artfully made horror came back in a big way. Um, you also had John Wick 2, which was great for like a rated R action flick. Uh, it also, you know, it, 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 it was a gift to genre fans for that. Then we had Logan, which, I mean, if you're a superhero fanatic, like, holy shit, you know, Logan is a holy grail type of movie. And then this week, we had Kong Skull Island, which I also have a video review up up on the YouTube, which if you haven't seen, I would suggest you go check it out. 
because that movie did surprise me. You know, while I do think it's just sort of like a big, dumb action movie, I, I think it actually had a lot to say about the world at large, and the filmmakers sort of wore their hearts on their sleeves and really sort of tapped into some interesting energy there. Um, but the reason I bring that up is because Kong had a very interesting weekend at the box office. It actually overperformed. You know, there were projections early on, and I brought this up last week, that they thought it would open in the mid-40 million range, you know, 40 to 45 million. Uh, As it turns out, it improved upon those projections by a whopping 35%, that throughout the weekend, they kept on tallying the box office, and ultimately, it ended up at 61 million bucks. That's pretty wild. You know, it's not, it's not often that the, the, the projections are that far off. And, I mean, obviously one of the main reasons that it, it got sort of turbocharged to that number one position like that and that it exceeded things was good word of mouth. You know, that's something that Warner Brothers has had a little trouble with as of late. You know, with these big tent poles of theirs, the word of mouth tends to be fairly toxic. So, you know, when you look at uh, the two DC movies from last year, hell, if you look at Fantastic Beasts, which, you know, I think somewhat underperformed for what it could have been considering it's a Harry Potter spinoff and Harry Potter is just a goddamn money printing machine for Warner Brothers. Um, Kong Skull Island sort of reverses that. It's one of the first Warner Brothers movies in a while, it feels like that actually had really, really positive buzz from fans and from critics alike. And uh, The weekend showed it. People went out there, and rather than the audience sort of dwindling by the end of the weekend, it kind of kept growing, and it kind of kept exceeding expectations. So Kong made 61. That was the number one spot. Number two is Logan. And you know, I got to tell you, I know that it had a good weekend, and in general... It's doing very good numbers. I mean, I'm sure you've looked into it. You know, it's, it's, it's broken some records for rated R movies, and it was, it's very good for one of these standalone Wolverine movies. Um, and it may, it's, not, it's hanging in there at number two with 38.1 million after a drop of 57%. And, you know, through two weeks, it's made 152.9 million bucks here domestically. So listen, that's all very respectable. Um, but I guess what I find interesting, and no one really seems to want to talk about, you know, everyone, is, I guess, is just so high on the movie that no one really wants to get into any sort of negativity on it. But, you know, I feel like it could be doing better. I'm surprised it's not doing better. Because if you look at just like what Deadpool did last year, you know, Deadpool didn't have the epic buildup that Logan had. Logan has 17 years worth of history coming to an end and a really beloved character and a really highly regarded actor in Hugh Jackman. You got Patrick Stewart. You know, Logan, in theory, has a lot more going for it than Deadpool was. Deadpool was sort of an unknown commodity, sort of a reboot, sort of a follow-up to a really terrible Wolverine movie, you know, with Ryan Reynolds being in both and introducing his his Wade Wilson in X-Men Origins Wolverine. You know, Deadpool had some baggage, and Deadpool was, in general, as a character that's only been around since the early 90s. So it's not like he has this huge legion of fans that have been following him for generations. So Deadpool did much better than Logan. And I guess, for me, what I find interesting is that Logan isn't tapping into that with all of the great word of mouth. You know, I understood that the opening weekend, while still great... Uh, was not as great as it could have been, didn't even approach Deadpool's numbers. While I understood that, 
because, you know, people like coming into it, people were still thinking about, you know, X-Men Origins Wolverine. They were still thinking about uh, X-Men Last Stand. They're still thinking about X-Men Apocalypse. You know, he, he's unfortunately, the character's been through some tough periods. And, uh, you know, I, I, I had a feeling that that was going to, you know, take, take a dent, you know, put a dent in, in uh, ep, you know, week one for Logan. I kind of thought that word of mouth was going to cause like a great surge moving forward. That when people realized how great the reviews were and also that when they heard the passionate responses from fans that, you know, Weekend 2 was going to somehow, you know, just have a very, very nominal drop off, a surprisingly low drop off. But no, you know, 57%, you know, that's... That's something, uh, and it's it's hanging in there at thirty eight point one, thirty eight point one mil. Um, yeah, I guess I just it's a little bit of a bummer because you know th- there is definitely a much larger audience out there for this kind of movie than has shown up so far, and I guess a lot of people, a lot of the Deadpool people, a lot of the people who made, you know, who who threw their funds at uh, Days of Future Past. And whatnot, for whatever reason, they're sort of, you know, still on the fence and not throwing their full support behind Logan. I know the R rating is a thing. It's the first Wolverine movie with an actual hard R. So that's definitely part of it. But remember, Deadpool was a hard R. So that's why when I think about that fact, when I think about the fact that Deadpool is not as well known and rated R and still is did much better than Logan. I just wonder, you know, is Logan going to hang in there in the weeks to come? What is the word of mouth going to help this thing leg out a much more impressive box office haul in the, in the long run? You know, we'll see. Um, and then aside from that, you know, in your top three, you have get out with 20.7 mil, which had a very short drop off, a very small drop off of 27%. You have the shack, uh, there in its second weekend with 10 mil. And then to round out the top five, you have the Lego Batman with 7.6 mil. So, you know, uh, not an altogether surprising top five. Uh, there's nothing in there that really jumps out at me. Last week, I thought there was a chance that if Kong, you know, stuck to those early projections of like 40 million, that Logan could actually leapfrog it and repeat at number one. Um, and I wasn't the only one who thought that, but as it turns out, Logan, you know, had its, you know, Logan somewhat underperformed, I guess you could say, and Kong Skull Island overperformed. So there is your box office for the week. Now, the first thing I want to tap on right now is Wonder Woman. They released that big trailer a couple days ago that's been sweeping the net. A lot of people are very high on it. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's, it, it shows the film to be a real legitimate origin story, which is something we haven't necessarily gotten. I mean, I, you know, to me, Man of Steel was definitely an origin story, but I guess people didn't consider it such because of the way it tweaked with the timeline, the way, you know, right after Krypton, we see him as an adult and then we just kind of get those flashbacks of him as a kid and whatever, but people don't seem to consider Man of Steel an origin story. I do. But Wonder Woman seems to be a much more traditional origin story in that sense. And, you know, I really liked it. You know, listen, I, I, I'm as jaded as they come when it comes to the DC Extended Universe. Anyone who's been listening to me or reading me at all for these last three plus years, you guys know that. That's no surprise. But, 
when it comes to Wonder Woman, you know, I'm ready to sort of give them a benefit of the doubt here. I want to see. I I was not one of the people who hated Gal Gadot's casting, first of all. I was someone who actually really liked her in Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. And so this movie, I hope it's really good. Um, And... You know, my my jadedness aside, my cynicism aside for the overall DCEU, this trailer excited me a bit. You know, I, I, I think there's a great character arc in there that I hope is as prominent in the film as it was in this trailer. Um, you know, in, in the trailer, when we see her as a kid and she looks at that sword, she asks, you know, who who will get to wield it? And she's told, you know, it's for the fiercest warrior. That won't be you. And as we go on, we see her grow up and she's being trained. We hear that she's being trained harder than anyone else, that they're working her over really hard. And that, you know, the, the Robin Wright Penn's character, oh, she's not Penn anymore. Robin Wright's character says something like, you expect the fight to be fair. And when I kind of see the arc they're going for there is that, you know, they don't think that she's fierce enough. They don't think that she's tough enough. She seems to be a character that expects the most from people. An optimist. Someone who believes in the light, in the best that humanity can offer. And that's why in general, and everyone around her is far more cynical and far more dark and, and battle-worn. And, you know, they, they've seen what the world is really is, and they want to harden her. And the idea, I think it's a fascinating character arc for, for Diana Prince and for Wonder Woman to kind of see what she does with that. You know, she, she starts off expecting the best, and then she gets somehow embroiled in World War I, that conflict between the humans. And what does she learn from all this? And how does she come out battle-tested? Does she end up becoming as dark and brutal and cynical as the women who raised her? Does she end up becoming a symbol of light and hope and optimism that helps inspire humans to be kinder to one another and to expect better from one another? You know, for someone like me who, who looks to these films because I love the, the, the themes of selflessness and heroism and inspiration and hope in times of darkness. Uh, Wonder Woman had everything in it that I would want from a hero movie. Um, so it really, I, I thought Wonder Woman looked really good. Uh, I, I felt that in general, between that and the new poster, which just emphasizes the word wonder, it's very clear that this is definitely part of DC's attempt to sort of rebrand the the cinematic universe. You know, the first two movies were sort of dark and contemplative and sort of cynical in their scope. You know, Batman v Superman in particular was very, very big on uh, deconstructing their heroes. I got to pause for a second. Jesus Christ, I'm all stuffed up. I hope I don't sound like uh, a sick motherfucker to you. Hang on. And I'm back. Hopefully I, I sound a little a little better now. I was a little stuffed up there. Anyway, so, you know, considering where they're coming from, considering what Dawn of Justice was and how, how people responded to that, it looks like Wonder Woman is definitely part of that. You know, at least they want it to be part of the rebranding and the, the emphasis on positivity and light and heroes doing heroic things. 
Um, which kind of brings me to my next sort of point on this, uh, accompanying the trailer, accompanying where they're, uh, you know, the excitement around this movie. There's been talk about Jeff Johns and his, uh, his influence on it. Um, so there was a quote that I would like to read about Jeff Johns and his involvement um, and then I'm also going to kind of, you know, point out some of the spin that, that people seem to be buying hook, line, and sinker, because there is some definite spin here, but we'll get to that in a moment. For now, I want to try to focus on the positive. So, um, who said this? Da, 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 da. Kanemoto. So, uh, Kurt Kanemoto, the vice president of production for Atlas Entertainment, which is one of the production houses involved with Wonder Woman said this of Jeff Johns' involvement with Wonder Woman. He said, Jeff Johns is one of our executive producers, and he's, of course, writing on this film. He's been an amazing part of the core team, along with uh, Chuck, which is Charles Roven, Debbie Snyder, and Zack Snyder, as producers in the core team, along with John Berg. He's bringing out all of the treasures in the DC chest and just going a little bit deeper than we have. It's something you can follow up with him on, with Chuck, just in terms of Jeff's involvement with all of DC. Now, you know, to me, that sounds great. You know, it sounds like he was very hands-on with this movie, and that, that that's very, uh, you know, encouraging. I've been saying one of the things that I'm worried about is the fact that we're not really going to get to see a Jeff Johns DC movie until like 2008 when Aquaman comes out. Because that's really the first movie that's pretty much had its entire production cycle happen under his watch. Because he was not, you know, he didn't get the big promotion to be the guy who oversees DC Entertainment until this past summer, until summer of 2016. I think, I think it was like mid-July where Jeff Johns officially got that promotion. And this is where the spin comes into play. Because in the article I read, I don't want to like throw shade on any particular outlet, but the outlet that, that I, I, I found this quote on and that I feel is, seems to be the general tone of the articles about this topic um, it, it says the following. It says, The longtime writer-producer was given creative oversight of the DC film slate a while back, and he has been overseeing the production of the entire connected universe. When Johns took over, Wonder Woman hadn't yet started production. Okay. Bullshit. I just have to call bullshit on that. Because Wonder Woman wrapped production. Principal photography for Wonder Woman ended in May of 2016. That's before he got the big promotion. He was always sort of in the ether of the DCEU. He was a producer on it. He was a creative consultant. But he was not the guy overseeing the franchise. He was not the guy calling major shots for the overall world until July of last year. Wonder Woman was already in the, in the can when that happened. Uh, the good news is, you know, aside, spin aside, it sounds like Jeff Johns was very hands-on with Wonder Woman, that perhaps the other members of the team, and it makes sense, the other members of the production team, you know, you had Snyder, both of them, Debbie and Zach, you had Rovin, yeah, everyone was sort of focused entirely on Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. So they kind of said, hey, uh, you know, uh, Jeff, can Wonder Woman be your thing? You know, and what he worked on Wonder Woman while they were working on that. And so it just sounds like coincidentally, 
almost accidentally, Jeff Johns happened to be making Wonder Woman as, you know, in his vision. Uh, not because he was the guy overseeing DC, but that happened to be the movie that they made his pet project. So for me, that's hope, that, that gives me hope. That means that we don't have to wait a year and a half to see what a Jeff Johns era DC movie looks like. We only have to wait like three months. So that's exciting. I want to see what Wonder Woman turns out to be. Uh, I want to see what a Jeff Johns produced and co-written venture looks and feels like. So that that's a major shift for me. Because I, I didn't know, I really didn't know how involved he was. And now they're basically trying to say that he was very involved. So, you know, for those of you who want to see the DC turn around, if you want to see them pivot in a direction that's more uh, pleasing, uh, looks like the wait is not long to see if Jeff Johns is the guy. We only have to wait until June. So, uh, Mr. Johns... Uh, from a guy who's been very cautiously optimistic about you taking control, I'm happy to hear about this. And Wonder Woman has been bumped up to a very big priority for me for this summer. Um, all right. So that's that there. Um, I also just wanted to say that, you know, Jeff Johns as a whole, in case you're wondering why it is I have this much faith in him, you know, he won me over years ago. He won me over with Superman, you know, the, the Brainiac angle, that, you know, the, the story that he wrote that led into Superman New Krypton. He won me over with Green Lantern Reborn. He won me over with Superman uh, Secret Identity or Secret Origin, whatever that one was called. You know, he's someone who I just think gets it. He knows what these films should be, what they should feel like. And, you know, now I'm extremely, extremely, uh, you know, excited about what, what's going to happen next. Um, and while we're on the subject of DC, there was also a report that came out yesterday that Mr. Matthew Vaughn is apparently Warner Brothers' top pick. Uh, and this came from Collider. You know, Collider is a reputable site. I trust them. The writer of this, I happen to know. I, I met him when I flew to London for uh, Assassin's Creed, and he was a good guy. And I have to feel that if he's reporting this, I trust him. I believe him. So we can definitely trust this report that Mr. Matthew Vaughn, the man behind, you know, uh, X-Men First Class and Kick-Ass and Kingsman the Golden Circle and Layer Cake... And Stardust, he's apparently Warner Brothers' top choice. Uh, he cautions that, you know, th th they haven't entered the deal stage yet, but just that Vaughn is apparently Warner Brothers' top pick for Man of Steel 2. Um, now, like I said yesterday on the Twitter, you know, I don't necessarily see it. You know, maybe I, you know, I like him. I, I, should, I should preface that. Uh, I, I like Matthew Vaughn. I've never seen a Matthew Vaughn movie that I didn't like. Um, I just don't know if he's really the guy for it. I might be, you know, jaded by the fact that, you know, Kick-Ass and Kingsman were so like, you know, they're dark and violent and vulgar and crass and all these things that I would never want for a Superman movie. And all these things that... You know, if we're going to get Superman back on track after what Zack Snyder's done to him, I don't know that a guy who comes from that sort of cloth is really the guy to, to you know, do it. 
there is this one quote that he made you know, that that he gave a couple years back that gives me some semblance of hope. And you know, at the end of the day, if he does get the job, you know, I, I I'm interested. I'll give it the benefit of the doubt. Um, so here's what he said a couple years ago. I don't know if you guys remember this, but it was pretty interesting. When when Warner Brothers was taking pitches for the next Superman movie, after they, after a couple of years, they decided that they were definitely not making a Superman Returns sequel, and that they were just going to go to a from scratch reboot. You know, Matthew Vaughn and Mark Miller, the famous Mark Miller, the comic book writer, they went with a very interesting pitch to Warner Brothers. And by the way, I don't know if you guys know about that, but they pitched like a like a like a three movie trilogy that ended in a very dark place. Mark Miller's a twisted dude, but they were going to do a thing where, like, basically by the end of the trilogy, the you know the the world has ended. Basically, the world is about to come to an end. Superman is the final survivor because of his abilities, and now as uh, as the yellow sun is about to, you know, go out and the earth is about to, you know, end. Uh, you know, he has lived through it all. He's the final survivor. He's watched everyone he loves die. It was this dark, crazy sort of epic saga. But anyway, back around that time, Vaughn had said this um, on his take. He said, I think that's the one thing not to do with Superman, trying to do the serious The Dark Knight version. Superman is about color and fun, or it should be for me. And it's funny to think that because right after he made that pitch and right after he was talking about, you know, what he thinks Superman should and could be, what did they do? They did the Dark Knight version of of Superman. They did, you know, Man of Steel came from Nolan and in many ways, tonally and visually, it aped the Dark Knight trilogy. Uh, So it's, you know, it looks like Vaughn, would, you know, d- does not agree at all with uh, with the Nolan and Goyer take that the first film received, and if he does think that it, it you know it's about color and fun, uh, then I you know th- that that gives me hope that he wouldn't try to turn Man of Steel two into another one of these like dark bloody action sort of spectacles where the the heart isn't there. We need a guy who can deliver heart. Okay, that's very, very important here. Um, And I guess, you know, judging on his prior filmography, if he adheres closer to X-Men First Class than Kingsman, then I think we're in good shape if he does get the job. And mind you, just in terms of the validity of this report, too, you know, if this is true, uh, and Warner Brothers are sort of putting this out there and people are picking up on it and they're reporting on it. Remember, th- this is exactly how the reporting for Matt Reeves began, that basically he was the studio's top number one get. That's who they wanted for the Batman. And now it's coming out that this is who they want for Superman. So if this is, you know, if this is going to follow the Matt Reeves mark and they're both named Matt subsequently, uh, this looks like step one in a, a, a brief journey that's going to end with Matthew Vaughn getting Superman. Um, and just as a side note, this is like a tangent, but I always find it interesting how Warner Brothers tends to look at previous pitches and previous incarnations of projects when they're trying to figure out what to do moving forward. You know, when when Brian Singer was putting together Superman Returns, you know, he looked through a lot of what had happened 
with Superman Flyby and some of the other stuff that Mick G and Brett Ratner were working on. Like, you know, Brandon Routh came from like, like Brandon Routh didn't really audition necessarily for Superman Returns initially. He, Singer found an old audition tape and that's what got him interested in Brandon Routh. So he was sort of picking up Routh from like the trash heap of those abandoned reboots. Then a couple years later, when, when Zack Snyder was putting together Man of Steel, he also went back to that period and he found the audition tape of Henry Cavill, who had auditioned for Superman Flyby. Um, then there's this now where, you know, Warner Brothers is trying to figure out what to do with Superman, you know, Man of Steel 2, and they're looking at a guy who had already pitched a Man of Steel movie. Uh, yeah, and then there's all this talk also, like George Miller suddenly being back in the fold after he had almost made Justice League Mortal. Now he's a producer on this Justice League, and there was talk he might direct an upcoming DC movie. So it's just funny. You know, Warner Brothers tends to like try to keep it in the family. You know, when they're trying to figure out what to do next, they're like, all right, well, who has already expressed interest in this? Who have we already sort of, you know, explored? Let's go back to one of them. So here we are once again with Matthew Vaughn, you know, initially having a dance with Superman seven years ago, and now he may end up making a Superman movie after all. So we'll keep an eye on that. I'm very intrigued. Uh, I don't necessarily see it, but I think he could make a good Superman movie in the right circumstance. Now a bit of a, a bit of a change, a bit of a left turn here. Mr. Edgar Wright. Edgar Wright. He of all the geek cred who's made such great films as Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead and uh, other things and almost made a Marvel movie, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, he just released a trailer for his next film called Baby Driver, which has a pretty damn crazy uh, cast. You know, you got Kevin Spacey and, and Jamie Foxx and you got, you know, it's got it's got some significant talent in there. Um and what's interesting to me is, first of all, the trailer looks really good. You know, it looks like a character-driven action film, which, you know, I always like that. I like when the action and the spectacle is grounded in something real and is not just, hey, let's look at all this shit we can blow up. So Baby Driver looks like a good character-driven action film. It looks far less jokey and, and, and satirical than the, than, than the films he made, you know, with, uh, with Simon Pegg. It looks like it's his first real attempt at like a, a big a big studio action film, just sort of done his way because it, it has a very sort of uh, interesting energy to it because it's very much driven by music. You know, the lead character whose name his nickname is Baby or his name maybe is Baby. Uh, he always has headphones on and he's listening to music all the time, and it looks like the action scenes are going to be staged and edited in a way where like it goes to music. It's almost like the movie itself has a very musical, interesting energy. And I, I, I respect Wright a lot um, because he's just, you know, he, he, he makes these sort of interesting visionary choices. So, you know, um, Baby Driver is going to be based on music. Then you had that one a couple of years ago that you know felt very much like video gaming, you know, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, um, where like you know, that was sort of the the general conceit that it felt like you were almost like a player in a in an offbeat video game. So I, I I respect him and the fact that he's he's visionary, that he has a unique sort of look on things, and that he makes movies that excite him, 
and that sort of don't adhere to inside-the-box storytelling. Um, and that's what sort of brings me to my next sort of big topic here. Because, you know, at one point, Marvel was going to deliver a movie, perhaps not unlike Baby Driver, for Marvel. You know, the, there was a big story there for a while that he was working on Ant-Man even before there was a Marvel Studios, before there was a Marvel Cinematic Universe. Edgar Wright had a dream vision for an Ant-Man movie he wanted to make. And for years and years and years, he tinkered on the script. And finally, he was going to get to make it. And then all of a sudden, within you know, just a few short months before it was set to enter production, he walked away. And it was crazy. It was crazy for fans of his. It was crazy for Marvel fans, too, you know, because it's like this was the first time a very high-profile filmmaker had just walked off of a film uh, for them. You know, it had happened with Thor, with the sequel, but none of the, the, the Game of Thrones director who left, um, you know, they, they weren't that well-known and they weren't that highly regarded as you know, just yet. Edgar Wright was a big-time defection when he walked away. And, you know, a couple things about that. You know, a, a few weeks back, uh, I, I published an article, uh, a scoop for the Splash Report. And I also have a video version of it on the L Fanboy Podcast YouTube channel, um, which you can find just by searching L Fanboy and then going to channel. But anyway, um, I, put up, I put up a scoop or I put up a report there about the fact that DC has had a hard time keeping its directors on board. That if you pay attention to their rather brief history, they've only really, you know, the, the franchise is less than four years old at this point. And they've already had uh, Michelle McLaren, Rick Famuyiwa, Seth Graham Smith, Ben Affleck all leave. You've, uh, and then, you know, part of the scoop was that James Wan almost left until they conceded and gave him full creative control for Aquaman. And Matt Reeves exited the Ben Affleck negotiations because he wanted full control over the Batman. Um, you know, they've had a pretty rough run. And there were some people who, who sort of fired back at me, of course, because everyone always thinks it's some sort of Marvel bias. And that's why I'm so hard on DC, which, of course, is a crack of shite. Um, but yeah, so there are people who fired back at me about that because they thought, well, aren't you going to talk about Marvel's director troubles? And that's where we kind of get into Edgar Wright here. You know, when it comes to Marvel's director troubles and when it, when it comes to what happened between them and Edgar Wright and some of the perceived issues that arose between, between Marvel and Joss Whedon and some of the, you know, the, the bad blood that happened between John Favreau and Marvel Studios, people may have a point. People may feel like, you know, maybe, maybe he's being too hard on them. Marvel's also had some tough director issues. Um, so here's my sort of, you know, here's what I want to say about all that. Um, when it comes to the Marvel stuff, it doesn't really bug me out that much, the problems they've had. Because what it all comes down to is they're a different type of franchise than the DC films. They're a different type of franchise compared to most blockbuster uh, series that are out there. Because they don't want to give their directors creative control. They just run it differently. And 
For some people, they may just instantly view that as a bad thing. To me, it's like, listen, that's just their business model. They, they're literally taking the TV approach to this. When they hire a director, they want a director who can just deliver the product they want. Where, listen, everything is basically on rails here. You know, this, we, we need the character to get from point A to point B. We need to make sure that X, Y, and Z are addressed. And we need to make sure that all of this happens. We've already worked on the script before we ever hired you. We've already designed everything before we hired you. We've even cast the main players before we hired you. So what we want is not a visionary director. We want someone who can basically get us from point A to point B and deliver us a product. And, you know, that's just, that's just the way it is. That, that's the way they run it. So the fact that in the early going of the, uh, of, of the franchise, they had some trouble where directors were not comfortable with that, that doesn't really, you know, it, it doesn't strike me as all that scary or all that controversial. You know, I've already said that I think that approach is somewhat short-sighted and that while it's doing great for their business for now and the franchise is growing, so who can really question them? But, you know, while I've already said that I think it makes for a stagnant product, it may, you know, that, that, that sort of, you know, this big shared world where everything has to be connected and every filmmaker sort of has limitations on what they can and cannot do with the characters, you know, it ends up making it so like they're kind of like handcuffs. It's creative handcuffs. So you end up with movies that aren't that exciting, are definitely not that surprising, and that in general don't really elicit the kind of response that a film like Logan gets or don't deliver the sorts of genre redefining surprises that like Deadpool gave us last year. Um, so with that said, though, I can't fault them for this approach. It's working for them. And a few directors have had to walk away because they didn't like the fact that Marvel puts a lot of cooks in the kitchen, that you basically have to make the film by committee. I get that. But to me, it just doesn't bother me. That's, that's their approach. That's what they're going to do. And moving forward, you know, they ever since Edgar Wright and, and leading up to Edgar Wright, they did a good job of hiring guys who are good as just basic hired guns. They come on. They get their, 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 their bullet points of what they have to create. They put a little tiny bit of themselves into it. But at the end of the day, they, they deliver a nice, safe, nicely wrapped product. Um, which sort of brings me into my next thing, which is all related to this. You know, we're starting with Edgar Wright and Baby Driver. And we're actually ending up with Taika Waititi and Thor Ragnarok. Because I think this could be the solution to those handcuffs. You know, I've spoken about the handcuffs now. I've spoken about the dangers of the shared universe and how sort of mundane it makes everything because you know that we're just, you know, everything, not, they're not going to rock the boat here. I think Thor Ragnarok, though, could be the formula that shakes this whole thing up and in my eyes, for people like me who've grown sort of tired of the Marvel formula, I think Thor Ragnarok could be the thing that sort of gets us back in and gets me excited about the MCU again. And here's why I say that. So <clears throat> we've already addressed that Marvel doesn't have any place in its heart, any place in its business model for a visionary director. 
They don't want a guy who wants to craft and create a story that we've never seen before and tell yeah, and, and totally sort of make his own thing and not have to worry about what the studio thinks. Marvel has no place in its world for that. They don't want a visionary director at all. But if they can hire directors who have the ability to elevate material, that is the key to success here. And I think that is what Taika Waititi is. Taika Waititi, it's a funny name to say over and over again and quickly, but Taika Waititi is, uh, you know, he's someone who, based on where he comes from, based on the indie world that he comes from, the sort of dark humor, the mockumentary format of stuff that he's done, um, you know, he's someone who seems to be able to, without tweaking the script, just make a scene more exciting and more entertaining because he knows how to direct his actors. And he knows how to shoot things in a way that just make them feel fresh and sort of adds his own flavor to it without just, you know, without pissing off the studio and making it totally his own, but also without butchering the script. And I've always said that, that a good director can elevate material. And when you look at some of the stuff, you know, um, the, the director has, has, has sort of said in the past that he was not crazy about doing a superhero movie. He said, um, if I'm really honest, I wasn't totally passionate about doing a superhero movie when I first heard of it. But talking to them and then watching a few more of the movies, I started thinking, oh, man, this could be really cool. And, you know, I, I read this whole feature on the film in Entertainment Weekly that really got me re- very pumped for, for, for Ragnarok. Um, he seems like the, the actors are very excited to be working with him. Uh, Kate Blanchett was talking about, you know, she was one of the reasons he signed on. That, you know, she, she, she loves, um, let's see, what did she put? She, she described him like this. She put, she said, Taika is sort of part sumo wrestler, part showgirl, part father you always wanted to have. He's so nimble. He takes the work seriously, but he doesn't take himself seriously. And it seems like, you know, for a veteran actress like her, she was excited <clears throat> to work with him. And <clears throat> that's exactly sort of what I'm getting at here, where he's, he's an exciting filmmaker who could take what's already on the script. He can take the, you know, the, the, the hard bullet points of what they need him to do, but shoot it in a way that's fun and shoot it in a way that maybe makes it feel different. Um, there was something else I liked when I was reading up on, on Ragnarok, which was, you know, one of the things Waititi hit on is that Thor needs to be one of the most entertaining and exciting parts of the movie. And that sounds like a no-brainer, but if you really think about it, in the first two Thor movies, like, he wasn't usually the most entertaining part of it. You know, we were there for Loki. We were there for other stuff. You know, and when he was on the screen, he was just sort of there to kind of help us sort of move through the general plot. And he is, quote unquote, the hero, the protagonist. But he was not really the guy that we were following all that closely through those movies. Things always got better when his supporting cast were there. And Waititi said that he wants to make sure that Thor is actually the most interesting, the most funny and entertaining part of the movie. He also acknowledged that, you know, Chris Hemsworth in general, he has a lot of potential when it comes to humor. You know, he talked about the fact that, you know, in in uh, that crappy uh, vacation movie 
And in Ghostbusters, you know, the, uh, Waititi said, you know, he's so good and underutilized in that department. He's legitimately one of the funniest things in this film. So it seems going to be the first movie that really puts Hemsworth front and center and makes his character actually the driving force for the movie. Because uh, for me, he was always just sort of like a boring lunkhead. And uh, it looks like Ragnarok is going to do that. It's going gonna, it's gonna to make Thor interesting for a change. Um, and <clears throat> while we're on the subject of Ragnarok, you know, it looks like one area where Marvel has definitely succeeded, even in my eyes, someone who, who thinks that their output is somewhat stagnant, um, they seem to understand the importance of a, of a third movie. Uh, if you look at what they did with Captain America's third movie, what did they do? They made it Civil War. It was the biggest one. I mean, it was practically Avengers 2.5. They introduced Spider-Man in it. They intro- you know, they incorporated one of the most you know beloved, um, you know, comic books of all time with uh, Mark Miller's Civil War into it. You know, they, they tried to supersize it. They didn't want to just fall into part three being more of the same. And then if you look at what they're going to do with the next uh, Avengers movie, the, you know, the, the third Avengers movie is Avengers Infinity War. And we already know that that's going to be unbelievably epic with so much going on. And it looks like Ragnarok's going to do the same thing. Like they're going to reinvent Thor. You know, I don't know if you guys have already seen, but it's, you know, it's a totally different kind of thing. He's got, first of all, visually, he looks different. He doesn't have the big red cape. Uh, he's got the short hair. They even took away the hammer. Now he's got the two swords. And they're going to put him in a sort of fish-out-of-water story where, you know, through his confrontation with, with Hela, or Hela, however you pronounce it, that's Kate Blanchett's character, he ends up on Sakaar where nobody cares that he was a prince. Nobody cares that he's an Avenger. He's just an everyday schmo. And all the other beings he encounters there are just as powerful, if not more powerful, than he is. So they're stripping down the character of all the things that we know of him. And they're going to like basically reinvent him. And it looks like his third movie is actually going to be the most exciting. How often do you get to say the third movie is the most exciting you know, reinvigorating thing that we've seen in, in a franchise. It's not usually the third one, you know? Um, so I, I kind of love their outsized ambitions for, for Ragnarok. I also love a lot of, of his, um, of the, of the director's inspirations here when he was talking about how he wants to, how he wanted Thor portrayed in this. He actually mentioned being very much inspired by uh, John Carpenter's 1986 cult classic, big trouble in little China. He said, Kurt Russell's Jack Burton was a buffoon, but he's lovable and you're with him the entire way. I thought Thor has got to be the one you want to be with in every scene. Um, So I love that. I love that he references Big Trouble in Little China. I love that when it comes to addressing the way he and uh, Mark Ruffalo's Bruce Banner are going to interact, he said he was looking at movies like 48 Hours even planes, trains, and automobiles, which for me, I mean, now you're speaking right to me because planes, trains, and automobiles is one of my favorite uh, comedies of all time. So as soon as you mention that as your, as one of your inspirations for a road trip comedy movie, you are, now you're like, we're best friends. Now I'm going to stalk you because you're my favorite person. So, um, yeah, I'm telling you when it comes to Thor Ragnarok, I have a feeling 
that we're going to be treated to something very fresh, very different, very exciting, and unlike anything we've seen so far with regard to Thor. And not just in his solo movies, but even in the Avengers. We're going to get a brand new, exciting new Thor here in this. And that, to me, sounds badass. And then when you got Kate Blanchett joining, you got Jeff Goldblum in there as the Grandmaster. I mean, there's so much I'm excited about. You know, a lot of news came out about this movie last week because of this feature in Entertainment Weekly. Like the premise, I didn't really realize what Sakar was. The way that they are handling this is that essentially, Sakar is like like the garbage heap that every wormhole in the universe leads to there. Anytime someone is discarded into a wormhole, they end up on Sakar. This is literally the riffraff, and that's why this Grandmaster guy was the, you know, uh, he, he uses them to his benefit. Um, and it sounds like they've sort of made the Grandmaster almost sort of like, like, like a bit of a con man. And I love that because Jeff Goldblum is perfect to play that sort of thing. Um, yeah, Taika Waititi. I don't love that damn name. Um, uh, Waititi, in talking about this, I'm trying to find the quote so I can say it perfectly for you. Yeah, he said... Um, he said, who would, you know, this is the director, he says, who would rule a place like Sakar? Jeff Goldblum. He's welcoming, but also puts you on edge. I like to think he was the first one to crash on Sakar. Everyone that turned up after that, he just sort of made them work for him. I think that's a great character. And I think Goldblum is the perfect guy to play that. Um, I like the idea that maybe, I don't know if they'll show it, but if just part of his backstory, if part of what Goldblum plays here is that he was the first one to land on this desolate place and he's like, shit, what do I do now? And then as more and more creatures started to arrive, he just instantly said, well, fuck it, I'm the leader. I'm going to decide that I'm the leader here and I'm going to tell them that this is my place and that they have to adhere to my rules and that he's just basically sort of like a snaky con man type who rose to power just because he know he knew how to seize this opportunity. I think Goldblum is going to eat that character up, man. Uh, and by the way, about Gila, you know, it sounds like Kelvin's old scoop uh, has been confirmed now. You know, they were talking about, you know, he, he revealed a while back that Gila may actually be the stand-in for death in the, uh, in the new, you know, in, in these movies. And, and like for Avengers Infinity War, that, you know, since it's based on some of the old, you know, the Infinity Gauntlet comics, where in those, you know, Thanos is, is trying to court death and he wants to, you know, death is one of the, is this character that he's very interested in, that for this time around, Hela is being described as the goddess of death. She is death. So it's like they've merged her character and the death from Infinity Gauntlet and the Infinity Wars. Um, so that sort of confirms that. So kudos to you, Calvino, on that. Um, I got to get him back on here soon, by the way. We got to, I, I, I feel like you guys are having a shortage of heart. So I got to get Kelvino on here. Um, but yes, so for Ragnarok, I think is going to be great. And I, I just, I don't, while, while looking into Edgar Wright and his new movie, it just sort of sent me into that, into my own wormhole to Sakaar. So, um, yeah, when it, and, and just to sort of close off on that, you know, Marvel does not want to give creative control, and I think that's a problem, but if they're able to continue to find directors like Waititi, 
who can elevate rather, you know, ho-hum material, I think that is the key to their future success. That's how I feel on it. And now we can officially move on. Uh, over to Star Wars real quick, why don't we? Uh, Star Wars, you know, I've been working very hard to avoid spoilers because I just, they drive me nuts. Uh, when it comes to Star Wars in particular, I don't want to know anything. And I know that Lucasfilm recently released some footage and, you know, people have been leaking some of what was on there and I've been just, I've been trying my best to avoid it. Uh, something that came up is apparently we learned what Luke's first words are. Luke's first words in the movie are to Ray. He just asks simply, who are you? Um, I don't think that's much, you know, I don't think that's a real spoiler. That's why I didn't really give you a spoiler alert. Uh, I just think that's interesting. <clears throat> you know, right now, you know, since one of the going theories is that Luke is her father, you would think he might know that. Uh, the fact that he, he opens with who are you and she seems to be a complete mystery to him that might fly in the face of all these theories that we've all had for two years now that Ray is Luke's daughter. So that's sort of interesting there. I don't really know what to make of that. I've been hoping since day one that she's not because to me, that's just too much. It's too like we've done this too much. You know, in the original trilogy, we meet Luke in the first movie and find out in the second movie that, you know, Darth is her dad. In this movie, I mean, did I, did I just gender swap Luke? <laughs> we find out in the second movie that Darth is Luke's dad. Then in this one, once again, if they're going to build it around this idea that we just met Ray in the last movie and in the sequel, now we're going to meet that daddy is this other, you know, is, is the elder figure. I just, I'm not, in, I'm not, I'm not into it. So I hope she's not. I hope she ends up being maybe a Kenobi or something like that. But, you know, so th th this little quote that came out there seems to throw some uh, water on that flame that Luke, uh, that Ray is, is Luke's daughter. The, the other thing that came out this week about Star Wars uh, is that Yoda may be in the film. Why do people think that? Well, because of a comment from Frank Oz, um, you know, he, he was recently speaking to Variety, and they asked him if he would uh, reprise his role in the new Star Wars. And he said, I feel like I'm a prisoner at war here, and I can only give you my name, rank, and serial number. To be true to the people who asked me, and they are kind of my family. I have to say, I've been asked not to talk about it. I love Yoda. I would be happy to talk to you about it at the time they let me. So, I mean, that pretty much says that he's in it, that he's just not allowed to talk about it. You know what I mean? If you look at the, at the phrasing and all that, it all sounds like it's already happened and that he's just not at liberty to share it yet. And uh, I can't say that surprises me. You know, I mean, Yoda's a very important person to Star Wars lore. He's a very important figure just in terms of, to, to generally the, the mainstream fandom of Star Wars. They picture certain key things, and Yoda is one of them. He's one of the faces of the franchise. And since he has officially moved on into ghost, you know, into Force Ghost territory, thanks to what, ha you know, thanks to what we saw in Return of the Jedi... Um, you know, it, it stands to reason that he'll pop up. Now, the question is how, you know, will he pop up 
as a force ghost that speaks to Luke, who's perhaps feeling, you know, trepidation about training Ray? Does he show up to Ray? Because Luke is perhaps there's something going on with him, and Yoda is warning Ray that she needs to be worried about Luke. You know, I, I don't know what the, what his role is going to be. But, you know, it totally stands to reason that since part of The Last Jedi is going to be, is going to center on Luke training Rey, that Yoda would be in there somewhere, you know, be it as Luke's confidant, be it as someone who reaches out to Rey as she tries to find her own way. Um, it, it doesn't surprise me at all that it looks like Yoda is supposed to be a part of all this. You know what I mean? So I'm looking forward to that. Um... And now we're going to move on. You know, that's sort of the only real Star Wars thing that I found worth touching on this week. And I'm kind of glad. I don't want to know anything about these movies. So I'm glad that there hasn't been a lot more than that. Um, and now we're going to move on over to Iron Fist. You know, that's coming up this Friday. It's going to hit Netflix. And everyone's talking about it. Um, you know, last week I spoke about it with the way Finn Jones has been sort of trying to you know, uh, fight against the this idea that the film is whitewashing. I mean, the film, that the series is whitewashing and that they've been insensitive in some way to ideas of race and equality and inclusion. And this week, we sort of continue on that mark because one of the interesting things about the reviews that have been coming out, which have been pretty lousy, by the way, um, a lot of the reviews are still, they're hitting this point home about the white savior and about, being you know uh, the character being whitewashed and there seems to be a definite you know bias or a bent to these reviews where they're not necessarily judging the series for the series they're judging it out of some sort of perceived ill that the series has 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 created and has uh, has done to its fan base and you know that doesn't strike me as particularly fair but. Here's what Finn Jones had to say about it. And mind you, I got to say a big fuck you to all the different writers on these little sites here that sensationalize this story. I read so many headlines that say something like, Finn Jones blames Donald Trump for the negative reviews of Iron Fist. It's like, are you kidding me? That's not what this quote is. I'm going to read you the quote. But anyone who distilled it into that, like that is pure clickbait garbage. He doesn't blame Donald Trump for the negative reviews. That's like anyone who used that as a headline, you are totally misleading. You're not creating an intriguing premise uh, or an intriguing question that makes people want to click. You're outright putting words in his mouth. So anyone who did that, Jesus fucking Christ, you guys make me so happy that I'm out of that game. I am out of the daily news grind and trying to figure out, let's see, what headline can I create that is going to get the most clicks? Because this sort of shit is like, it's shameless. No, Finn Jones does not blame Donald Trump for the negative reviews, all right? Here's what he actually said, and then we're going to get into what it actually means. He says... I think the world has changed a lot since we were filming that television show. I'm playing a white American billionaire superhero at a time when the white American billionaire archetype is public enemy number one, especially in the U.S. 
We filmed the show way before Trump's election, and I think it's very interesting to see how that perception, now that Trump's in power, how it makes it very difficult to root for someone coming from white privilege when that archetype is public enemy number one. Danny is a fish out of water, and you don't really understand where he's coming from. But I think there's also a level of intrigue. People need to see the full series. Iron Fist doesn't end until the last episode of Defenders. He really goes on a journey of self-discovery and grows into the role. It's paced out. It's a long journey. So that's what he said. And people want to talk about that he's blaming Donald Trump for the negative. Like, no, he's not passing the buck. He's not... uh, It's just people, you guys, you sensationalistic cocksuckers. Uh, What he's talking about is we live in an interesting time right now. We live in a fascinating geopolitical time here in the United States. And if you're going to ignore that, then you're missing something here. You are... You're living under a rock. He's absolutely right that in this particular time that we're living in, it's tough to release a show about a white American billionaire being a superhero. And then when you factor in the fact that he goes into, you know, into a situation where, you know, he has to be heroic, but he's learning things from, from Asian culture and, you know, and there are some sort of racial undertones there. And right now, race is a huge you know, talking point, and it's a huge issue across the country. Um, of course, those things are going to negatively impact the way people look at the show. And all he's pointing out is that, that right now it's interesting to have made a show that when we started it, the country was one way. And by the end of it, the country was in such a polarized place that now everything is political. Everything is a chance for people to stand on a soapbox and yell and scream. Everything is some sort of crusade. And that's all he's trying to say. It, it, it's, it's fascinating to see how the real world affects perception of something as fictional as this, as something as just a bit of you know, entertainment on Netflix has suddenly now become this, this raw nerve and it's, be, it's hitting on this stuff that everyone feels the need to share their, their, their big opinion on. But really, they can't base it on anything yet because they have an arc for this character and an arc for this story that ends when the Defenders ends. So if you're going to judge this based on just the general premise and just based on the pilot, then what the hell is wrong with you? You are missing the point here. So he's not blaming Trump personally. He's not even like necessarily passing the buck along and and giving an excuse for the bad reviews. He's just pointing out that it's not really a surprise that the show is not being received that well, considering the time we live in now. And that basically, if you're an American white billionaire, you know, everyone seems to hate you right now. A lot of people seem to hate you right now. And those kind of people are having a hard time seeing past that, and they're they're allowing it to to interfere with their with their reviews. Um, and I think that's a perfectly sane, perfectly reasonable thing to say at this particular point in time. Um, he's not, you know, he's really not just passing the buck here. And if you think he is, just get a life. Um, yeah, so that's it for Iron Fist. And now we're going to move on. We're moving on. Oh, actually, you know what? We shouldn't do that yet. 
Sorry, I'm always I always fly off the cuff here. Um, I did ask a question of the week last week, and a bunch of you did take a chance to to answer the question of the week. So let's go ahead and read those. I asked you all, what did you you know? Where are you guys at with the Han Solo movie? What's your excitement level at? What are your what, what are your feelings about it at this moment? And I asked that because the production has begun. And we've been getting images from the set, and we've been learning more about the cast. So, you know, whether you like it or not, this thing is coming. So now that it's coming, what are you guys feeling about it? Uh, Nathan Lee Ivy, my old buddy, he tweeted, uh, The Han Solo film is so not needed. Give me Knights of the Old Republic. I'll still be there opening night, but come on, give us something new like Rogue One. It's funny that he considers Rogue One new since, you know, even I felt Rogue One was tied a little too closely to the original trilogy. When I when I want something new, I think about Knights of the Old Republic. I think about something that's not necessarily tied in to anything we've seen so far. But, you know, Nathan felt that Rogue One was somewhat new and different. And, you know, he he it doesn't sound like he th- sees the point in this Han Solo movie. Uh, Tavo Borrego! said, uh, I have a lot of faith in Lord and Miller, which is the main reason I am actually excited for the Han Solo movie. Uh, he's from Puerto Rico, so, you know, I had to give it a little accent there. Uh, so it sounds like Lord and Miller alone give him faith. Uh, I agree. Lord and Miller give him faith. And for me, I would add to that Lawrence Kasdan. I think Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote Empire Strikes Back, or co-wrote it, and he co-wrote uh, the The Force Awakens, having him involved you know, instantly piques my interest more than it probably would have originally. So it sounds like Borrego has reservations, but the fact that he he likes the talent involved, he likes Lord and Miller, uh, he's willing to give it, you know, he's willing to be a little bit more optimistic on it than uh, than you'd think. Um, then there is Sean Coulter, a longtime listener and reader. He says, kind of in the middle on Solo. When it's out, it's out, and they'll get my money. But in general, it sounds like he's just sort of, he's not sure how to feel about it. Um, and right now, like, I don't really know what I feel about it, to be honest. I don't think it's necessary but I do agree in the creative team. I just, I don't know. I don't know. It's hard for me to find a concrete opinion about the Han Solo movie. I mean, I, I'm definitely concrete on the idea that it doesn't need to happen. I just wonder if I want to give it, if I want to give it more of a benefit of the doubt than I have in the past. I don't know. Uh, there was another one, Dan Bali. Dan Bali, uh, he, he seemed to follow up on what Davo said. In answering the question of the week, Dan Bali said, Agreed. I just don't want to get too excited before I've seen more of it. But Woody Harrelson is the man. That was My Australian accent was probably the worst it's ever been just now. But Barley also, again, you know, just based on the talent, uh, he seems interested. So, listen, we'll, we'll see what happens with the Han Solo movie. I, uh, I'm really not so sure about it myself, but... You know, we'll see. And before we wrap up, I realize I didn't actually touch on the whole R-rated thing for DC. And you know what? The reason I didn't touch on it and the reason um, 
it just sort of flew under my radar as I discussed DC topics earlier is because I think we, we might be making too much of it. Listen, I will never be, I, I'm never known to be the one who lets DC off the hook for anything. I, I've been harder on them than possibly anybody. But when it comes to this, I don't think we need to do, uh, I don't think we need to be so hard on them. Because first of all, it's not even like we have a direct quote from someone at Warner Brothers confirming this. All we have is a report from the rap, and the rap says that they have a well-placed source at DC who told them that, you know, with regard to would they make an R-rated movie, he said 100% yes with the right characters. And to me, that's the key. For me, that's what takes the sting off. As long as they do it based on this character warrants this type of movie, then fine, have at it. You know, there are plenty of characters in DC that could definitely have an R-rated movie. I mean, you could, you know, there's a great argument for the fact that Suicide Squad should have been an R-rated movie. It's about a bunch of killers, you know, and it's violent and it's vulgar, and they, uh, they should have pushed it a little further and made, you know, and allowed David Ayer to make his hard R action movie. I mean, that's kind of the world he comes from anyway. So Suicide Squad and its sequels, you know, the, should be rated R. Uh, the rumored Deadshot movie, that should definitely be rated R. Gotham City uh, Sirens should be rated R. Um, even like Lobo, if they ever get around to making Lobo. You know, there are definite characters within the DC universe that could and should warrant an R rating. Um, so that's why for me, as long as what their source tells them is true, then it doesn't really bother me. You know, they, they say with the right character. So as long as they're not like, all right, so now, you know, Logan was popular and Deadpool was popular. So now here's a rated R Superman movie where he's cursing up a storm and punching people's heads off. Like, no. Um, yeah, as long as they're not trying to force an R rating onto characters that don't warrant it, as long as Wonder Woman 2 is not rated R, then I don't really have a problem with this. As long as they, they, they follow the idea that the character has to warrant it, and it has to be a character that fits in to that sort of mentality, and you're not just trying to force it, then listen, I, I, I don't mind that at all. So that's sort of my, my thing there on the DC and the R rating. But all right, <clears throat> I'm officially getting ready now to move over into my Logan discussion. So if you've been listening thus far, and this is going to be your, your, your exit point, then thank you for listening up to now. Please go ahead and retweet the tweet where you found this podcast. Tell your friends about it. Give me a review. Um, oh, and I suppose I should give you guys a question of the week. How about that? Since I, I should do it now instead of at the end, since I may be losing a couple of you right now. And that question is, since we're talking about DC and our ratings, there's one character who for me could go either way, where he's a beloved icon to children, but due to the, the very nature of his origin and what his rogues are like, could probably have a kick-ass rated R movie, um, Batman. What would you think of an R-rated Batman? Would that be a bridge too far for you? Or do you think an R-rated Batman makes sense and should happen? I'm not saying it's going to, 
But if we're talking about this, if we're talking about characters in the DC pantheon that could or should get an R rating, uh, I feel like Batman has to be in that conversation. I am torn. I'm torn. I really am. Because on the one hand, I grew up loving Batman. And if he had an R-rated movie when I was five and I wasn't able to go see it, I'd be heartbroken. And in general, I think it's weird to take Batman and turn it into you know, a grown-up property. I totally understand why, creatively speaking, you could go there. If you look at some of the dark subject matter, the heady ideas of Nolan's movies, if you look at some of the brutality of his villains and where, where like where this version of the Joker is with, you know, the Jared Leto that we met in Suicide Squad, you know, I could see them making an R-rated, violent, crazy, twisted Batman movie. I just wonder if, uh, if that's just, if, if there's something, um, what do you call it? Blasphemous about that. So that's my question of the week. What would you think of an R-rated Batman movie? Should they make one? And lastly, but not leastly, before I get into Logan, I also just want to let you guys know that I have booked a wonderful guest for the show. He's going to come on in a couple weeks. We're going to have the marvelous one himself, Dave from Latino Review, another old school member of the team who's currently, he moved on to some great stuff. You know, he, he went from Latino Review to MTV, and now he also co-hosts uh, one of the best and biggest podcasts out there, Storm of Spoilers. And he has another one called Fighting in the War Room. I mean, he's a top-of-the-line cat, and I'm very excited to have him on the show in a couple weeks. So for those of you guys who liked when I had Kelvin on a few weeks ago and like the idea of the old band getting back together... Uh, I've got Dave coming on in a couple weeks, so keep an eye out for that. That should be, or an ear out for that. That should be pretty damn special. But now, here we go. This is it. A bunch of you have been waiting on this for a while, and I'm ready to finally get into this with you. We're going to talk about Logan. We're going to talk about it in all of its spoilerific glory. Um, So, as a bunch of you know, that movie floored me. I think it's probably the best superhero movie of the modern era. Um, well, definitely the best of the modern era. Uh, possibly ever, really. But I, I, I just can't do... I can't say it's better than Superman the movie. I can't do it. But, um, yeah. So the movie rocked my world, and I got to see it again last week. And in doing so, you know... Usually when you see something a second time, the, the, some of the power is sapped, you know, because you know what's coming. And I was curious to see what, what it would be like to take this journey for a second time. Would it still hit as close to home? Would it still hit those notes in me that it did the first time around? And, I mean, it did. It really did. Um, I was... Uh, I still pretty much cried at all the same times, and I felt exhilarated at all the same times, and I laughed at all the same times. So that goes to show you that the storytelling is so is so good, and it's so smartly done, that even a second time around, um, the, the film is just fantastic. But now, some of the stuff that stuck out for me as just really powerful, you know, some people complained about the, the, about the use of the clone 
that X twenty four was the villain. That you know they don't show him any any of the trailers. People were hoping it'd be someone more like Mister Sinister, or maybe they would get Sabretooth in there, or Omega Red somehow, something more comic booky. Uh, I for one was thrilled to death that they did what they did. I didn't see it coming, first of all, and I like a good surprise. But also, <clears throat> X like it had to be this because if you think about it, for the last seventeen years. As we've gotten to know this version of Logan, what has he been at war with? He's been at war with himself, with his very nature, wondering, who the hell am I? Am I a killer? Am I a hero? I was turned into a weapon. Am I a weapon or am I a person? You know, so having the villain ultimately be him fighting himself takes his poetic battle and makes it literal. And I'm glad they did that and not just get a villain who's a lot like him, which is what they you know, tends to happen in movies like this. You, you know, the, the villain is sort of like a, a broken mirror image of the hero. But here, I like that it was literally Logan versus Logan. Uh, and it was very potent because it, it brings up the idea of nature versus nurture. You know, Logan had Xavier on his side. And Xavier helped bring out his humanity. He believed in him. He helped bring him back from the dark place that he was in when he became Weapon X. And all of the, the, the tragedy of his life up to that point. You know, uh, Professor X helped bring out the best in him and make him a hero. X-24 had Xander, Xander Rice, in his side. And Xander brought out the worst in him. He only cultivated the killer. He only cultivated the darkness. I thought that was very interesting and very powerful because all throughout the movie, we see Logan and Professor X as pretty much father and son. You know, their relationship is very much the relationship of a father and son. And during the few moments where we see Xander and X-24, they play with that same idea. If you recall, in the scene when he's resuscitating X-24 after the attack on the Munson house, and he's injecting him with the, uh, the green stuff, and he's saying, you know, th th this will help you heal. The, the way he's speaking to him and the way he looks at X-24, as X-24 awakens and they lock eyes, he has this glimmer in his eyes, Xander does, and this grin, because... Yes, he may be a total fucking monster. You know, Xander, not even X-24. I mean, they both are. But Xander may be a total corrupt, you know, soul. He looks at X-24 as like a child. He's proud of him. And X-24, in return, looks to Xander as his sort of guiding light. If you'll remember, in the final sequence, when the two of them are fighting each other, when Logan is fighting X-24, and at some point he actually gets the upper hand and he's got the car door over X-24's throat, and it looks like he might actually decapitate the motherfucker. Uh, X-24 is in a tough spot. And then what happens? He glances over and he sees that Xander has been killed. And just then Pierce looks at X-24 and says, yes, he did that. And that's what gets X-24 to suddenly go from being in trouble to fighting back and overcoming Logan. Because X-24 loves Xander like a father. 
just as Logan loves Xavier. So the duality of that was not lost on me. And I thought it was a very powerful statement, a very powerful sort of poetic exploration on the idea of nature versus nurture, that we all have these different parts of us inside. And having the right people in our lives brings out different parts of us and maybe pushes us on our, on our destined path. And the people that we choose to listen to, the people that we choose to surround ourselves by really do shape who we are and who we become. I know that was profoundly deep for a superhero movie. And in general, just that the, the, the duality of that, of the two of them with the different father figures in their corners and how differently they turned out and Logan's final battle being against the monster that's been inside him all along. Uh, it's just incredibly powerful stuff. And what stopped it? What killed the monster? What finally allowed him to have peace? His own child. The fact that Laura was the one who killed him, I think there's something in there too. There's something poetic and symbolic about that. That for many of us, Having a family, having a child, creating a legacy for ourselves, that is how we find salvation. That is how the, the, the demon inside us is rectified, because through finding that true love and that kinship, that's how we are saved. And in those closing moments of his life, as the light is leaving his eyes, he looks at this little girl who loves him so much. And she's crying and she calls him daddy. He smiles and he says, this is what it feels like. Oh, man. I mean, I know it's sad, but that's a happy ending if ever there was one. Because Logan, Logan's arc was so tragic that the fact that he got to go out on the terms of having his daughter unconditionally love him and say goodbye to him. And those are his final moments as, as the light goes out. I mean, that's what, that, that's what anyone could hope for from a hero. And, you know, your tour has ended, Logan. And uh, thank you. Um, so that was all very powerful for me. Uh, and while we're talking about what happens at the end... You know, I, something I touched on in the video review that I'm going to get into a little more now is how heartbreaking it was to see where Xavier is in his life, to see Xavier at the end of his rope, not getting that hero's death and the impact that had on Logan. But even before that, their relationship, the fact that at some point or other, we all end up feeling like we become a burden to those around us. You know, it's Shakespeare, it's the seven, the seven ages of man, where we all end up in that second childishness, where now we are the weakened ones who need help and who need guidance, and we need to be carried up the stairs, and we need to be put on the toilet, and we need to be washed and cleaned and fed, and the unbearable burden of that. And the inevitability of that, because so many of us are, are going to have to deal with that. I thought that was a crazy thing to tackle in this kind of movie. And it was really heartbreaking for me. You know, that moment where he realizes 
that he could have killed all those people for me was an extrapolation it was an it was an they they took the idea of i i'm becoming a liability which we will all face one day and they put it into x-men terms they put it into they marvelized it you know what does it mean to become a liability as you grow older in the x-men world and to sort of explore that and to see him sort of come to grips with the fact that I'm losing control and that now I'm hurting those around me. Um, it's just heartbreaking, man. Um, don't even get me started on the scene after when, when Logan buries him and he's just trying desperately to find a way to look at the silver lining here because Xavier, this great, great figure did not deserve to go out this way. He's a seminal figure in this world. You know, he's like a, he's like a Malcolm X. He's like a Martin Luther King. He's like, you know, he's one of these important figures in, in, in history. And what happened? He was killed in the middle of the night and now he's buried under some rocks next to a random lake. He deserves so much better. And Logan is trying to figure out a way to put a positive spin on it. And he tries to say, you know, it's by a lake, it's, it's by the water, and he can't get the words out. Because it's true, we don't all get to go out on our own terms. And very few of us will get that, that rightful death, that death where you get to go out the way he eventually does, with nothing but love in your heart. And to me, that was just, it's brutal and... It brings to mind, you know, what all of us are going to have to deal with at some point or other as we say goodbye to our parents, we say goodbye to our grandparents, we say goodbye to our loved ones, looking back on their legacy and making peace with how it all came to an end and how do we choose to remember them? You know, for me, all that was in there and it was just, just brilliant, just brilliant. Logan, I mean, hats off to them, really hats off to them. And then there's all the socio-political stuff that's worked in there that just makes the movie so heady. There's so much there's so much meat on the bone here. I mean, when you talk about what they have to say about the GMOs, about what are we putting into our bodies, what is the government, what are what are those in power? Like in real life now, like Monsanto and all that shit. What are they what are they putting into our food that you don't even have to legally label anymore? Um, you know, the, the, there's a line I didn't really catch the first time around that I noticed the second time around where he's on the Munson farm and they're talking about how they put all that, that high fructose corn syrup and everything, uh, which boosts our levels of, uh, you know, our, our boosts certain hormones in us. So we're like happier and we're jollier because, you know, the Munson guy says, you know, a bad day can't just be a bad day anymore. Um, I think that's, you know... That's a, that's a big, big, big statement to make because right now, you know, we don't know what we're eating and there is sugar like in everything. There's documentaries on this that there's, you know, sugar is added to everything because of what it does to us and how a, it helps mask flavor, but it also, you know, it boosts certain levels. And I was like, they're trying to sedate us. They're trying to sedate us so that we can be happy with the shit that we're given. They want us just to keep going to work. They want us to keep paying our taxes and producing for them the upper 1%. 
they want to they want to basically coddle us and get us to not be angry so that we don't rise up against them and this film mentions that this film touches on that and they take it a step further by saying that they use the gmos to basically weed out mutant kind that the reasons that mutants are, are no longer in existence is not because they naturally went extinct, but because it's in the food. That basically they, they were able to kill off random mutancy just by the hormones they were putting in our food. And that all plays into the idea that the chemicals that we are now in real life being fed, that they're doing it so that they can control us. I mean, it's yeah, crazy stuff. And they talk about Donald, you know, I mean, you know, they talk about Trump a little bit with the border wall in Mexico and the, the guys in the limo chanting USA. And there's this little one-off remark about how Mexicans are getting killed near the border in Texas. And that's apparently like a normal thing that in this future, that's only 12 years away with the way things are going, you know, uh, white nationalism is going to try to kill off immigrants and, um, you know, Mangold wanted to sort of make a statement on that. Um, yeah, there's just, there's, there's so much meat on the bones here that it's hard to believe that they got away with it and they still made it so entertaining and not preachy, you know? Like, wow, good for you guys. Um, and that may very well be it. That may very well be it for what I want to say on Logan. It's just an incredibly powerful masterwork of, uh, of cinematic storytelling. It's got everything you want from a superhero film. It is a little dark. It is a little sad. But if you haven't seen it yet or you have seen it, you know, go see it again and think about this stuff. The film is an essay. It's an exploration. It's poetry. And I, for one, am so grateful that they made it. And that Fox gave Mangold and Jackman the, the freedom and the liberty to make this movie the way they wanted to. And to say the things that they wanted to say about it. About the world, about these characters, about heroism, about nature versus nurture, about surrounding yourself with the right people. And about trying to find light. You know, there's that line that broke my heart. In the, in the film where, uh, where Logan is telling Xavier that Eden doesn't exist, that the nurse got it from a comic book. You understand? It's not real. But Charles says it is for Laura. And it's true. It wasn't real. Those kids created Eden based on those fictitious coordinates, but there was no Eden. But she needed that hope. We all need that hope. We have to nurture the light inside us. And that's what Xavier had been doing for Logan all his life. Yeah, from the time they met each other. Trying to nurture the light in him because he knew that inside Logan's heart, there was hope that he could one day be happy and one day be loved and one day find love. And Xavier was basically trying to pass that down to his son. That's what we try to do. We try to learn from our life and our lessons. And we try to pass that on to our offspring. So he tells Logan, it is for Laura. It, you know, just wow. There's a lot in there. 
And I'm going to have to see that movie a few more times to get all the different meanings out of it. But suffice it to say, Logan is a goddamn masterpiece. Um, And that's it, everyone. That is the end of episode four. No, episode five of the Fanboy podcast. Thank you for joining me for my usual weekly rants on the weekly news, plus my two cents and my own perspective on things. Remember, this week's question of the week is, what would you think of a rated R Batman movie? Please take the time to go leave me some reviews, because clearly you guys are making a dent, as uh, Fanboy is doing very, very nicely on iTunes. Um, And that's it, guys. Thank you so much. I hope you guys are safe out there. I know right now we're buried under a lot of snow here in the Northeast. I'm in New York, and uh, both my kids are home. I mean, my daughter's not at school. My wife didn't have to go to school. She's a school teacher. So I'm going to go spend some time with my family. Be safe out there. And uh, we'll talk next week. Remember to visit lfanboy.com. Subscribe to the LFanboy YouTube page. And uh, we'll talk more next week.